Hey, it's Bob Stoffer. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Oilers Now ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Zach Hyman was on the show in the first hour. John Shannon uh, from ProMSports.ca talking about fan caves and memorabilia. Jack Cookson and I got into a conversation about how limited uh, the items were that uh, Marty Morazic, uh, who is uh, the Oilers uh, concussion specialist, did his postgrad at Georgia and got me a, a Bulldogs uh, uh, jersey, even though I'm an Alabama fan. And Chris has reached out from Alabama saying, hey, brother, I'll hook you up. So, Chris, thank you for listening to the show all the way in Alabama. I'm sure you were a little bit nervous this weekend. We get back to hockey, and uh, we are going to hook up with uh, one of the uh, best writers from The Athletic, a guy that served um, in a variety of roles at the NHL level as well with the Florida Panthers organization. We head off to the River Cree Resort and Casino Hotline. He's going to be in Penticton at the upcoming Young Stars Tournament. We welcome back to the show Thomas Drance. Hi, Thomas. How you doing? Bob, thanks for having me. Hope you've enjoyed your summer. Well, uh, 50 out of 52 weeks I host the show, but I did go to your... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was in Vancouver for three days. I was in Kelowna for about Lovely. six. So there we go. Now, during your time, uh, and you can help us here with this, because you did work for the Florida Panthers, what, three seasons, two seasons in a PR role? Three seasons, yeah. Okay. Uh and I, I think if the, the listeners of this show, because I talk enough about the Southeastern Conference uh, football, uh, but is there, I mean, it, it is kind of overwhelming at times, isn't it, relative to the impact that the Floridas of the world uh, would have and, and how and how much South e, uh, you know, SEC football means to the Southeast? Yeah, I mean, the way to think of it, I, I do think, is uh, as being akin to what NHL hockey is for us up in Canada, right, where it takes on... Uh, you know, almost a closer similarity to to religion than to a normal diversion or, or entertainment product. Um, you know, that's that's what SCC football is in the South. Uh, and you can see it, too, in the energy in those buildings, right? You can see it in terms of the way that, you know, LSU's recruiting class and, and what's going on with, uh, you know, Boutte, <laughs> how that soaks up oxygen in Louisiana, just as an example. Um, you know, it's, it feels pretty similar to the Vancouverite appetite to discuss, like, Vancouver's long-term cap picture in the wake of the J.T. Miller signing, right? There's yeah. a level of detail that, that verges on uh, true obsessiveness, and, and let's, be, let's be honest, Bob, we love it, we right? Love it. Like, we, it's great. We, li- we live for it. Uh, yep. Uh, there's, I mean, do, are they ever going to be able to cons- – like, you got to have a good team to sell. I, th- I think we get that in the States, and the Panthers are now a good team, and many would suggest they're one of the best-run teams in the league. I mean, there were some tough miles during the times that you were there, wasn't there? There were, yeah. It was. Uh, I mean, I didn't get to cover a single playoff game, so that'll tell you everything you need to know. It was, uh, it was lean. And, yeah, I mean – you know, it's such an uphill slog because even though the clubs now made the playoffs twice and won their first playoff round uh, since 1996, it's still their first playoff round win since 1996. I mean, that's a lost 16 years, right? That's the system. The NHL system isn't really designed for teams to be, you know, that poor for that long and continue to build an audience, um, you know, I think that's sort of the the task that the Panthers are still up against. Um, You know, I I think we could see some sort of, um, you know, lingering market softness in and around their, their, even the attendance to that uh, playoff game against Tampa Bay. 
you know, there, there's some work to do yet to close the gap with some of the real success stories in, in those Sunbelt Belt markets. But certainly the way that that team has played, the window of opportunity they have, you know, it's a pretty young core. Like one thing that I thought was ignored in that Huberto Uyghur for Kachuk swap was that, you know, almost everyone in that Panthers core group was 26 and under with the exception of Huberto is 29 and Uyghur who's similarly UFA aged, right? Um, the deal that they made for Kachuk, a younger guy sort of gave them uh, a, a, like a more extended runway with cost certainty and a, and a young group that should be able to grow together for three or four years. I think they may have taken a step back for this upcoming season. I'm not expecting them to repeat as, you know, president's trophy <laughs> contenders right. or, or winners this season. I, I also think there was some good fortune going on in terms of some of the leads that they were able to come back from eliminate. Uh, you know, there, there was some, sh- there's some shooting percentage regression stuff that I'd expect to come back to earth a bit. So, you know, I do think they've probably taken a near-term step back, but with the way that they're set up with this core group and cost certainty around it and the ages of those pieces, plus the effectiveness that Bill Zito's already shown as the general manager in sort of filling out the roster uh, in the bargain bin, uh, you know, I, I think they've sort of put themselves in a place where they can have a, a durable window of contention around a pretty exciting group of young players. We're joined by Thomas Drance from The Athletic. He's based now in Vancouver. What's happened with the Canucks over the course of the last couple of years? Because, you know, they had a little bit of a run in the Edmonton bubble in 2020. Yep. And, and i got to tell you, Thomas, I throw everything, and maybe it sounds Oiter-centric, but that bubble to me was... It was foreign. Like I, I don't think you could overreact to what happened. I mean, we yeah. had we had writers in Edmonton sit there and say the Oilers had leadership issues because McDavid and Drysaddle, who by the way were plus players and combined for 15 points in four games, they didn't lead them past the Chicago team, which d- does have three or four Hall of Fame players on it. I digress. Yeah, I mean, they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have lost that series, though. Yeah, well, they shouldn't have. But they didn't get no. a. They didn't get a stop. They had defensemen from Europe that didn't want to come back and uh, play in North America. One of them never played again after that. Uh, like, so they lost to Chicago. The, yeah. Can- the Canucks won a series. Meanwhile, right? So it was a different, yep. different experience. Now, did expectations change as a result of that? What do you, What do you think? Where are you at right now with where Vancouver's at as an organization? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is it's tempting to say when a team has a unsustainable run in the playoffs and then regresses, right? We're used to telling the story, Bob, right, where the team bought their own sort of, like, headlines, right? Oh, they overreacted to their success in the bubble and went the wrong direction. I mean, we've seen this with the Colorado Avalanche and the Patrick Waugh era, right? The, the great save by Waugh era. Um, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs in the, in the Nonis Burke era, right? I mean, we've seen that story play out, and people want to tell that story again because it's a familiar one. And it's a good story when, it, when it's the case. But in the Canucks case, I don't think that's what happened. You know, what really happened, in my view anyway, was they have this success in the bubble. And, and I think they were on a path to building a, you know, a prob- probably like a playoff caliber team around Pedersen and Hughes at that juncture. And the pandemic caused a significant amount of financial stress. And if you look at sort of what happened that offseason and some of the deals that were made, right, it was really a very cash-conscious offseason for a team that tends not to behave that way. In terms of actual 
uh, salary spend that year, they dropped to the bottom 10 of the league, which is unheard of for the Vancouver Canucks in the cap era. Um, every single unrestricted free agent was permitted to walk. Jacob Markstrom, Tyler Toffoli, Chris Tanev. Uh, some mistakes in that group, I think there's no question about it, considering the you know, level that those players have been at and the efficiency of the contracts that they ended up signing you know, in Calgary and Montreal, respectively. Um, obviously, all three are now in Calgary. Uh, then you've got sort of this Holtby deal where it was backloaded to the almost the maximum allowable extent. Like I had to double check when I got the contract terms on the day of, I remember, because I was like, I'm not sure if this is legal. Um, <laughs> the Jake Vertanen contract similarly structured in the same way. Also, I have no idea why they decided to do a two-year deal at all, but probably it was partly a, ca- a cash-saving maneuver, right? You could push more, more salary into the second year and, and save a buck on the front end. Obviously, that deal ends up being bought out. So does the Holtby deal. They do make the Nate Schmidt trade. That didn't work. It was really a one-year rental of Nate Schmidt with significant opportunity costs considering the similarly priced players who walked out the door. And, you know, that 2021 season uh, was a catastrophe, like a thorough organizational catastrophe at every level. And yet, you know, I think because of some of the financial strain that the club was under, the fact that they were just trying to keep the lights on rather than trying to win games, you know, significant structural change didn't come after that season, right? As bad as it was finishing seventh in the All-Canadian division, um, they retained the same general manager. They retained the coaching staff and, in fact, extended the coaching staff. And then they come back in 2022, uh, last season, 2021-22, having made you know a, a, some additional all-in swings with significant long-term comp- uh, consequences, including the you know Gunther, uh, Erickson, Beagle, and Roussel for Oliver Ekman Larson, who signed through 2027, and Connor Carlin deal, and you know things just fell apart right out right out of the bat, right out of the gate, and they fell so far behind the eight ball now. They make changes. Bruce Boudreau comes in. Latter 57 games of the season, the, the team was on a 106-point pace. I'm sort of fading the idea that the Canucks are now suddenly, as a result of Boudreau and this more up-tempo system that he installed, uh, you know, a contender to be uh, at the top of the Pacific Division. I think that's a, a big ask. Uh, I think Calgary and Edmonton are, are in a different weight class still. But, you know, this team should be in the playoff mix. They should be he makes, up there he makes with the, the playoffs every now. year. He makes the playoffs every year, the guy. It, it, takes, it takes a catastrophe in net for him not to. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's, a per, he's personally magnetized to postseason hockey. Yeah. And so we'll see sort of if that, if that stands, if that lasts again. But, you know, I sort of look at the Pacific, and, and I'm curious to get your take on it. But, I mean, I see Calgary – as sort of the favorite, they should be the favorite in the Pacific, in my opinion, because that's an elite defensive group. I don't see them being any worse than the third best defensive team in hockey. And you only have to be something like the 15th or 20th best offense to be 110 plus point team. That, that's such a high baseline in my view for Calgary. So I'm calling them the favorite in the Pacific. I think Edmonton's second up for sure, uh, you know, based off of what they've got with, uh, with the elite talent that they have. We, we all know uh, what Edmonton's best players can do. And then I sort of see a, a, a tier of three uh, with sort of L.A. having sort of the highest floor and, and kind of the lowest ceiling of the group for me. Vegas being the biggest wild card in the NHL. Like, there's a 30-point radius. I'm Like, with a 30-point radius where I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I won't bat an eyelash. If the Vegas Golden Knights finish the season with 85 points, I won't be like, well, that's a surprise. 
And I won't be surprised at all if they finish with 115, right? Like anything within those 30 points, I'll be like, that makes sense. So I see Vegas as sort of a, you know, high ceiling, high floor, complete wild card. And, and I kind of think Vancouver is going to be in that mix as, uh, you know, something like a 92 to 98 point team. Uh, just off their power play, goaltending, uh, and forward depth alone. And so it's going to be pretty interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, I got Edmonton, just so you know, I got Edmonton and Calgary duking it out. I think the Oilers are going to win the division. I said they'd win the division last year. And everything went right for Calgary. I mean, they had no injuries. Now, part of that was because they have a big, heavy, tough team. And, yeah. But they also all got COVID at the same time. I mean, Edmonton had a two eleven and two run where they played fifteen defensemen during that stretch, and part of it was yeah. COVID related. Calgary, unlike Vancouver the year before, or Vancouver at times last year, or Edmonton last year, Calgary never got stung last season with heavy COVID run. But I do think the Flames are better than they were a year ago. I mean that. I, I think a, there's a real chance of it. They're like I think they're going to have a better, and I think they'll be better suited for playoff hockey if they play the Oilers. I, I'm still shocked. Yeah at how they played against Edmonton. So I've got Edmonton and Calgary top two, and I have the same three teams, but I have Vancouver making it and Vegas missing. And maybe well, it's just wishful thinking to see the three Western Canadian teams make the playoffs in the Pacific. Uh, it'd be fun. It'd be yeah. fun. Let's let's hope. But All right. the, uh, can yeah. I ask you a question quickly before, before, before we move on? Yep. I can't remember. I can't remember a team as good defensively as Calgary is ever adding a top pair caliber defenseman, which is what they've added. in well, and, you, and, and, you know, know, and you know Ueger well. You saw him play. So I do. You, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's an excellent neutral zone rush defender. I mean, I, I think there's massive potential if they play him with Tanev. Uh, you know, it's basically combining one of the best in-zone defensive players with one of the best neutral zone defensive players on one pair. Yeah. I think there's... But anyway, I just can't remember. I can't remember an elite defensive group adding a defender of Uyghur's caliber. I don't even know. Like, it's almost like that transaction was designed in a lab to sort of show me uh, and show us, show the hockey world just exactly what the it's sort of maybe diminishing returns or, or potential uh, exponential improvement uh, that results from a defensive group this deep, this, this sort of complete, adding a defensive player of that caliber. I'm fascinated to watch it. I can't believe how much they played uh, Zadorov and Gabranson together against Edmonton last, and the Oilers got to them at yeah. times, right? And now you've taken Gabranson out, who's a strictly a number six defenseman for me. Uh, mobility isn't good enough. Puck skills aren't good enough. And you've replaced him with a guy who has unequivocally been a top three NHL defenseman for the last you know, like he's he's a he's a top pairing guy. That's all there is yeah. to it. You can't no tell question. me there's not sixty better defensemen in the league than him. No. Okay. No we got about uh, four minutes here. You're going to Penticton. I'm going to Penticton. I've seen nice. the I've seen the Oilers ro- uh, roster. They're gonna have four first round draft choices there. So Broberg, Holloway. Uh, they're uh, gonna have. Uh, Xavier Borgo, as well as Reed Schaefer, who was a late first-rounder this year. The, mm-hmm. I don't think the Canucks are going to have one. Uh, nope. They're not going to have one. I, I, have you seen Winnipeg or Calgary's roster yet? Not yet. I think they're all coming out tomorrow, is my understanding. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Winnipeg will have uh, Chaz Lucius. Uh, they'll have Sandberg and uh, Perfetti. So in Sandberg and Perfetti, uh, Sandberg, of course, not a first-round pick, but that's yeah. a guy who's got a real shot at being in their top six. Perfetti's got a real shot of being in their uh, top six as well, right? So yeah. uh, that's like two guys who I think will play uh, pretty meaningful NHL yeah. roles. Um, so, you know, in, in, in Edmonton's case, right, you probably have the most draft capital going. 
But uh, aside from Broberg, is anyone really threatening to be an everyday player well, for direct, that team? Direct quote from Ken Holland. Broberg in yeah. training camp and preseason uh, literally has to play his way off the team, and, Hollow- yeah. and Holloway has to play his way onto the team. Right, exactly. So, so you know, it's going to be interesting. I think Winnipeg and, and – uh, I think Winnipeg probably is going to have the best group in terms of overall talent level. I think Vancouver is probably going to be at the bottom there. Uh, you know, the sort of Canucks storylines that we're tracking are uh, Archdeep Baines, who was, of course, the WHL's leading scorer and unsigned uh, free agent. Red Deer Rebels. Drafted free agent. Yeah, yeah, Red Deer Rebels for, for the Canucks. Uh, and, and guys like Linus Carlson or Linus Carlson, who's uh, – a European free agent who's, um, or not a European free agent, but the Canucks acquired him from uh, San Jose a few years ago, and he, he seems to have hit, has a bit of a unique prospect profile. But, I mean, the the, <laughs> the caliber of prospect on Vancouver's Young Stars team sort of pales in comparison with what we're going to see from the other Canadian clubs, which sort of emphasizes some of the risk inherent in doing the uh, JT Miller extension, in, in my mind anyway, which is, you know, as this Canucks group retains and has some of their key players get more expensive in the years to come, can they fill in the gaps with enough cheap labor considering the state of their prospect system, which, you know, I think this tournament's going to illustrate, um, you know, isn't quite at the same level as some of their rivals in the Pacific. Well, Thomas, uh, the Oilers are the only team in the NHL. Um, last year, of the top, the teams that finished in the top 12, Edmonton and Minnesota, were the only f- uh, two teams that had their last four first-rounders in the right. organization. And the Oilers are the only team in the NHL uh, over the last 10 years that still has all 10 first-rounders in their organization. So, Unreal. Like, there's lots of teams that have only drafted three first-rounders, but the Oilers are, you know, Pugliarvi is still with the club at this time and not sure w- what happens at some point during the year. But right now... Dating back to Darnell Nurse in 13, you know, Leon and Connor 14, 15, Pugliarvi 16, Yamamoto 17, Bouchard 18. That gets us in a Broberg in 19 and Holloway in 20, and then Borgo and Schaefer 21 and 22. That's 10 first-round picks over the last oh, – yeah. no other club has that. So well, lots of ammunition. Lots of ammunition to go all in and uh, <laughs> and make a big deal this, uh, this final, season. Hey, I got a fi- final one for you, though. There's a guy yeah. that Edmonton almost traded away the pick in uh, way back in 2013. Uh, mm. To the New Jersey Devils, uh, or sorry, to the Vancouver, yeah, to the Vancouver Canucks. They almost traded the for seventh Schneider. for Schneider. Uh, yeah. New Jersey ended up moving the number nine, and uh, that was Bo Horvat. And yep. on Bo Horvat, what's the latest on his contract negotiation, if any? Yeah, Bo Horvat spoke with the media today after his captain's practice. We were we were all there. I think Bo wanted to rip the bandaid off, right, and just like address the situation so that he could focus on hockey. It's been amazing because you know this market and how um, high-strung we can get. Yeah. <laughs> you saw it with JT Miller and how that played out for 10 months, uh, sort of consuming all oxygen around this team, uh, the will they or won't they and the trade speculation. Um, with Horvat, it's been really quiet, even though his contract situation is identical. Right, and that's because the organization privately has made no sort of bones about the their view that Bo Horvat's a priority, that they want to keep him here, and Horvat likewise uh, has been consistent in talking about being a lifelong Vancouver Canuck. He's the captain of the team, and yet the Miller deal got done first, and that's very simply because the club got to a point with Miller's camp where they were comfortable doing the deal. They haven't got there yet with Horvat's camp, and so. Horvat said the right things today. There were no elbows thrown. 
uh, suggested that, you know, there's no timeline that he's necessarily going to put on contract talks, but he'll leave it to his agent, Pat Morris of Newport Sports. Um, we're we're kind of going to see here. I, I do think from the team's perspective, though, getting Miller done does change the urgency of needing to do the Horvat deal, right? Like, I do think it sort of changes things just a little bit in terms of how the organization views that, of like the, the need to move aggressively to close on in these contract talks. Um, I still think this gets done. I'm, I'm not trying to okay. you know be salacious here, but um, I, I'm curious to see exactly how this plays out over the course of the next few weeks and months. We'll see you in Penticton. Hey, look forward to it. Have some wine, my friend. Or two. Thanks, Thomas. Take care. <laughs> Be well. Thanks. Yep. It's Thomas Strands from The Athletic. Royal Pizza, Pizza Past, and so much more. Edmonton owned and operated for over 50 years. For a menu and a list of their 15 Edmonton and area locations, go online at royalpizza.ca or download the Royal Pizza app from the App Store. The Stoffer recommendation at Royal Pizza is the Mediterranean chicken. To this day in Oilers history, and here's Brendan Escott. Go back to 1985 when GM Glenn Sather acquired tough guy Marty McSorley from the Pittsburgh Penguins for Gilles Maloche and uh, Tim Hrinowick. Uh, McSorley became quickly <laughs> known as, uh, of course, Gretzky's bodyguard and played in 160 games for the Oilers. Through the 80s, he racked up uh, 647 penalty minutes and then was sent to Los Angeles along with Gretzky August 9th. 1989. All right, we'll do our Lindsay Nelson here. Reed Wilkins is inside sports. Who does he got? Um, oh, it looks like your broadcast partner, Jack Michaels, and then an episode of Elks this week. Morley Scott in the driver's seat for that one. Brennan Escott is hosting the show tomorrow. Two of his guests will be Kurt Hill, general manager of the Edmonton Oil Kings, with an update on their weekend. I'll join Brennan as well. Fluid show, is that fair, Brennan? Suffice to say, yeah. Yes. We'll work on it. Uh, Mark Spector, who normally joins us on Tuesdays, uh, courtesy of Horse Racing Alberta, presenting live thoroughbred racing Fridays and Saturdays at Century Mile Racetrack and Casino Parking and Admission Free. For more info, visit thehorses.com. Speck will join us from Penticton on Thursday. Up next, the Global News Weather Traffic Update with Evan Cook, followed by Rob Breckenridge from 2 to 3, then the 6.30 Chet Afternoons with Jay Lynn Nye. Brendan's got your show Tuesday and Wednesday. I'll join you Thursday from Penticton.